Chapter Twenty Eight of Mountain Adventures in the Various Countries of the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mountain Adventures in the Various Countries of the World by John Timms. Chapter Twenty Eight Discovery of Peruvian Bark. The whole world and especially all tropical countries where intermittent fevers prevail, have long been indebted to the mountainous forests of the Andes for that inestimable feverfruge which has now become indispensable, and the demand for which is rapidly increasing, while the supply decreases throughout all civilized countries. There is probably no drug which is more valuable to man than the febrifugal ocaloid which is extracted from the Chicona trees of South America, and few greater blessings could be conferred on the human race than the naturalization of these trees in India and other congenial regions, so as to render the supply more certain, cheaper, and more abundant. It would be strange indeed if, as is generally supposed, the Indian aborigines of South America were ignorant of the virtues of Peruvian bark. Yet the absence of this sovereign remedy in the wallets of itinerant native doctors who have plied their trade from father's son since the time of the Incas certainly gives some countenance to this idea. It seems probable, nevertheless, that the Indians were aware of the virtues of Peruvian bark in the neighborhood of Loxa, 230 miles south Quito, where its use was first made known to Europeans, and the Indian name for the tree, Quinaquina, bark of bark, indicates that it was believed to possess some special medicinal properties. The Indians looked upon their conquerors with dislike and suspicion. It is improbable that they would be quick to impart knowledge of this nature to them, and the interval which elapsed between the discovery and settlement of the country and the first use of Peruvian bark by Europeans may thus easily be explained. It may be added, however, that though the Indians were aware of the febrifugal qualities of this bark, they attached little importance to them. They think that the cold north alone permits the use of fever bark, consider it very heating, and therefore an unfit remedy in complaints which they believe to arise from inflammation of the blood. In about 1630, Don Juan Lopez de Canizares, the Spanish corregidor of Luxa, being ill of an intermittent fever, an Indian of Malacatus is said to have revealed to him the healing virtues of quinaquina bark, and to have instructed him in the proper way to administer it, and thus his cure was effected. In 1638, the wife of Luis Geronimo Fernandez de Cabrera Babidila y Mendoza, fourth count of Chincona, lay sick of an intermittent fever in the palace at Lima. Her famous cure induced Linnaeus, long afterwards, to name the whole genus of quinine-bearing trees in her honor, Chincona. The Count of Chincona returned to Spain in 1640, and his Countess, bringing with her a quantity of the healing bark, was the first person to introduce this invaluable medicine into Europe. After the cure of the Countess of Chincona, the Jesuits were the greatest promoters of the introduction of the bark into Europe. In 1670s, the Jesuit missionaries sent parcels of the powdered bark to Rome, whence it was distributed to members of the fraternity throughout Europe by the Cardinal de Lugo, and used for the cure of agues with great success. Hence the name of Jesuit bark and Cardinal's bark, and it was a ludicrous result of its patronage by the Jesuits that its use should have been for a long time opposed by Protestants and favored by Roman Catholics. In 1679, Louis XIV bought the secret of preparing quinaquina from Sir Robert Taylor, an English doctor, for 2,000 louis d'or, a large pension and a title. From that time, Peruvian bark seems to have been recognized as the most efficacious remedy for intermittent fevers. The region of Chincona trees extends from 19 degrees south latitude to 10 degrees north, 
following the almost semicircular curve of the Cordillera of the Andes on 1,740 miles of latitude. They flourish in a cool and equable temperature on the slopes, and in the valleys and ravines of the mountains, and surrounded by the most majestic scenery, never descending below an elevation of 2,500, and ascending as high as 9,000 feet above the sea. Within these limits, their usual companions are tree ferns, melostomaceae, arborescent passionflowers, and allied genera of Cynocosius plants. Below them are the forests, abounding in palms and bamboos. Above their highest limits are a few lonely alpine shrubs. But within this wide zone grow many species of chingona, and within its own narrower belts as regards elevation above the sea, some yielding the inestimable bark, and others commercially worthless. The chingona plant has never been found in any part of the world beyond the limits already described. When in good soil and under favorable circumstances, they become large forest trees, on higher elevation, and when crowded and growing in rocky ground, they frequently run up to great heights without a branch, and at the upper limit of their zone, they become mere shrubs. The leaves are of a great variety of shapes and sizes, but in most of the finest species they are lensosolate, with a shining surface of bright green, traversed by crimson veins, and petioles of the same color. The flowers are very small, but hang in clustering panicles, like lilacs, generally of a deep rosette color, paler near the stalk, dark crimson within the tube, with white curly hairs bordering the lacinae of the corolla. The flowers of C. mancrenthia are entirely white. They send forth a delicious fragrance which scents the air in their vicinity. The roots, flowers, and capsules of the chingona trees have a bitter taste, with tonic properties, but the upper bark is the only part which has any commercial value. Until the present century, Peruvian bark was used in its crude state, and numerous attempts were made at different times to discover the actual healing principle in the bark before success was finally attained. The first trial, which is worthy of attention, was made in 1779 by the chemists Bourgeot and Cornet, who recognized the existence of an essential salt, a resinous and inerthy matter in quinquina bark. In 1794, Croy discovered the existence of a coloring matter, afterwards called chinchona red, and a Swedish doctor named Westrig, in 1800, believed that he had discovered the active principle in quinquina bark. Rose, a Russian chemist in 1815, was the first to give a tolerable analysis of it, and about the same time, Dr. Duncan, of Edinburgh, suggested that a real substance existed as a febrifugal principle. Dr. Gomez, a surgeon in the Portuguese Navy, in 1816 was the first to isolate this principle, and he called it quinconine. But the final discovery of quinine is due to the French chemists Pelletier and Caventou in 1820. They considered that a vegetable alkaloid, analogous to morphine and strychnine, existed in quinoquina bark, and they afterwards discovered that the febrifugal principle was seeded in two alkaloids, separate or together, in the different kinds of bark, called quinine and chinconine, with the same virtues, which, however, were much more powerful in quinine. The discovery of these alkaloids in the quinine bark, by enabling chemists to extract the healing principle, has greatly increased the usefulness of the drug. In small doses, they promote the appetite and assist digestion, and quinconine is equal to quinine in mild cases of intermittent fever. But in severe cases, the use of quinine is absolutely necessary. India and other countries have been vainly searched for a substitute for quinine, and we may say with as much truth now as Lambert did in 1820, this medicine, the most precious of all those known in the art of healing, is one of the greatest conquests made by man over the vegetable kingdom. The treasures which Peru yields, and which the Spaniards sought and dug out of the bowels of the earth, are not to be compared for utility with the bark of the quinaquina tree, which they, for a long time, ignored.
The species yielding red bark, the richest and most important of all the quinconae, is found in the forests on the western slopes of Mount Chimborazo, along the banks of the rivers Chancan, Chasausen, San Antonio, and their tributaries. The collection of bark in the South American forests was conducted from the first with the most reckless extravagance. No attempt worthy of the name has ever been made either with a view to the conservation or cultivation of the chinchona trees, and both the complete abandonment of the forests to the mercy of every speculator, as in Peru, Ecuador, and New Granada, and the barbarous meddling legislation of Bolivia, have led to the equally destructive results. The bark collector enters the forest and destroys the first clump of trees he finds, without a thought of any measure to preserve the continuance of a supply of bark. Thus in Apolomomba, where the trees once grew thickly round the village, no fully grown one is now to be found within eight or ten days' journey, and so utterly improvident are the collectors that, in the forest of Cochabamba, they bark the tree without felling, and thus ensure its death. Or, if they cut it down, they actually neglect to take off the bark on the side touching the ground, to save themselves the trouble of turning the trunk over. In 1839, Dr. Boyle recommended the introduction of the chinchona trees into India, pointing out the Nogari and Seahart Hills as suitable sites for the experiment, and Lord William Bentick took some interest in the project. But this attempt was surrounded by difficulties, from which all other undertakings of a similar nature had been free. When tea was introduced into the Himalayan districts, it had been a cultivated plant in China for many ages, and experienced Chinese cultivators came with it but the chinchona had never been cultivated since the discovery of its value in 1638. It had remained a wild forest tree. All information concerning it was solely derived from the observations of European travelers who had penetrated into the virgin forests, and the only guidance for cultivators in India is to be found in the report of these travelers, and in the experience slowly acquired by careful and intelligent trials. Great as these difficulties were, they were probably exceeded by the perils and risks of every description which must be encountered in collecting plants and seeds in South America and conveying them to India. But the vast importance of the introduction of these plants into our Indian Empire, and the inestimable benefits which would thus be conferred on the millions who inhabit the fever-haunted plains and jungles, were commensurate with the difficulties of the undertaking. In 1859, my services were accepted to superintend the collection of chinchona plants and seeds in South America, and their introduction into India. I was authorized by Lord Stanley, then Secretary of State for India, to make such arrangements as should best ensure the complete success of an enterprise, the results of which were expected to add materially to the resources of our Indian Empire. By the spring of 1861, a large supply of plants and young seedlings was established in the Nilgari Hills, and at the present moment we have thousands of chinchona plants of all the valuable species flourishing and multiplying rapidly in southern India and in Ceylon. Extracts from Travels in Peru and India by Clement R. Markham, FSA, FRGS End of chapter 28 Recording by Todd